Welcome to the teaching ministry of Pastor Deborah Grohler. We pray that you will be blessed and empowered by today's message. Today we are going to look at and hopefully complete chapter 26 of this glorious book of Genesis. 46. What did I say? 26? FaceTime Live, pay no attention to, to that. We're, we're, we're going to eliminate that. Yes, chapter 46. See, I just threw that out to see if you really... But you were really nervous we were on 26. You're thinking, oh, no, we're not going back there again. That was two years ago, right? Last week, if you remember, we pondered um, the amazing realization that there is end-time understanding in the very first book of the Bible. We were just looking all over and finding that the book of Revelation was literally giving us uh, insight as we looked at this Genesis book. Namely, we looked at tribulation last week and we looked at the second coming of Christ. If you have no idea what I'm talking about, you should order the CD because we spent the entire week last week looking at the typology, typology I should say, of how Genesis is a picture of the book of Revelation, so we did that last week. Today, we are going to see Jacob finally reunited with Joseph after 22 years. And forgive me, because I can just feel myself. Um, so it's an amazing moment that we have really just been journeying together and waiting for this moment. In fact, I dressed for this glorious occasion. I thought I would dress up for this reunion. Yes, absolutely. Now, no, there's still going to be five years of a famine remaining, which God will set up to keep Jacob and his family in Egypt. It's a setup that he's got them there. The number five in Scripture, as you know, is often and always associated with, uh, with grace. And certainly this five years that they will spend in Egypt will be grace to Jacob and his family as the worst of the famine they've yet to realize. However, these five years are going to turn into four generations that they will stay in Egypt. Once he brings them back, and we're going to read that chapter, they will be there for four generations, or which will amount to how many years? 400 years. And during that time, God will utilize that time to grow not just 70, not just 12 tribes, but he's going to literally birth a nation in this place. How many know God can just grow things and produce things and bring fruit in places you would least expect him to do that? But that's when he did it. And I think we'll gain some insight on what that was all about before we're done the chapter. So let's jump right in. Open up your Bibles to Genesis 46. We're going to look at verses 1 and 2, and they will be on the screen. So Israel, notice the name took his journey with all that he had. I definitely would circle all that he had or underline it. And he came to Beersheba and offered sacrifices to the God of his father, Isaac. That, that, that phraseology there gives us a clue that, that he's thinking covenant, okay? The way he calls out to Isaac tells us that's a covenant relationship. And thereby we see the compliment of him being called Israel by Moses, who's penning this book, right? Then God spoke to Israel in the visions of the night and said, Jacob, Jacob. So God changes that. And he said, here I am. So again, verse 1 says that he left. And he left with all that 
he had. I, I, I don't know about you, but what that says to me is he left nothing behind. He cleaned house. He got his house in order and on the road. In other words, Jacob was all in. He was all in. I mean, how many of us half obey God? We, we keep some things behind just in case we need to turn back. We got some comfort back there. No, I, we see here, and there's this usage of these, this name balance back and forth where, where Moses calls him Israel because he took all he had. So that, that movement of faith is there. And we see Moses relate to him and compliment him in that way for that very thing. So again, he took all that he had, and, and, and he's complimenting him because he's making a movement in faith. You know, we're studying on Friday nights at our Shabbat service faith, the force of faith. And we haven't even begun to uncover the subject matter. We've been just building foundation all along. Because we can't have faith if we don't have trust in the thing we have faith in. So we've just been building a foundation. We've been cementing all the cracks in the foundation. Poor teaching, no teaching, lack of teaching, no teaching, new people, older people. And this is an amazing thing because when we see here that Moses is calling him Israel, he's calling by his covenant name. Why? Because he's pleasing God with his faith because it's impossible to please God without faith. And the fact that he was all in, that's a movement of faith. And he stops at Beersheba to make a sacrifice. The sacrifice spoke to God. It honored God that, that, that he's asking God, are you truly leading me to do this? He took a stop there. Are you treating, truly leading me? Because I'm sure he's heard the other stories about his father and his grandfather and their families who made their way to Egypt, and it was less than God's idea when they got there. So, so he's stopping to just speak to God, and in that day and time, these sacrifices and these altars were a place, they spoke to God in a very unique way, and such is the case here as we see this. So he does this at Beersheba. Would you say that with me, Beersheba? What you need to know about Beersheba, which is somewhat significant to what we're learning, is it's the last town in Canaan before you get to Egypt. So, you know, I'm wondering, was he starting to get fearful as he was going? Because God starts calling him Jacob again. Did he start having doubts? Did he come to the realization that, let, let me call out to God? See, he wasn't calling anybody else. He was going to the throne and not the phone, if you will. He was making the right moves. I want to bring a picture up on the map, and there it is, just exactly where his journeys were taking him. It's the last town before he goes to Goshen, which we'll, we'll see will be, will be in, in the very place of, of, of Egypt. So he's inquiring of the Lord through the sacrifice because he knows that if he leaves Canaan, it's leaving the very place that was promised to his father and his grandfather. So he questions that. Is this, Lord, is this really your will? Is this really what you want? Remember, he had worked 20 years for the opportunity to return to Canaan after fleeing from Laban. I mean, let me refresh your memory on some of this. So the land is the inheritance of every Jew since Abraham. So he's, he's hesitant. He's questioning. He's wondering, is this really you? How can anyone be doing this? Lord, when you, you called me back here, could you be leaving? And, and, and I don't know about you, but can you relate to this like I'm relating to it? That, that sometimes God makes no sense, does he? Sometimes he'll give you something, and then he'll take it away. Yeah. 
or he'll allow it to be taken away. And I think the reason for that is because God wants us to take hold of him and not the thing. That's what he's interested in. So the only way he'll know if we're attached to him or the thing is if the thing's not there anymore, what do we have left? And so we can relate to what Jacob is going through this. God is asking him to leave the very thing he asked him to pursue at one time. These things test our hearts. They just test our hearts, and that's exactly what's happening here. Will we be obedient even when it makes no sense? Will we? Because we can justify anything. I mean, we can justify anything that we want to do or that we don't want to do. And so here we see he is going to the Lord and he is clearing this just question mark or confusion up, whatever it might be, he's having it clear up. And in response, God quickly answers, and by the way, this is the sixth time that he will have appeared to Jacob. Okay, so he appears to him right away. We saw what he said. Verse three and four says, so he said, I am God. You know, he, God clears that up right away. We're not going to have a conversation about what you think. Let me let you know who I am. Because we're going to do it my way or we're going to do it my way. But we are going to do it my way. I am God, the God of your father. Again, this is covenant talk. He's taken him back to the promises, the Abrahamic covenant. Do not fear. So there must have been fear, which is why we see the name changed from Israel that Moses saw him starting out, right, cleaning up the house, packing up the house. He's headed out with a marksman of faith, but then along the way. Has anybody ever had any along the way moments? We can start out good, and somewhere down the road, something can set in. Amen? And so he's saying, do not fear to go down to Egypt. I mean, God is specific here. He doesn't say just to go down. You know, in other words, don't stop in Beersheba. He actually calls the place he called them to go to. Do not fear to go down to Egypt, for I'll make of you a great nation there. Again, reiterating Genesis 12. I will make a great nation of you. Right? And I will bless those that bless you, and I will curse those who curse you. The reiteration of this covenant promises given to his grandfather are undeniable here. Then verse 4, I love this. He says, I'll go down there with you. What a personal God we have. No matter where we find ourselves on our journey to wherever he's called us to, he's with us. He said, he'll never leave us. He'll never forsake us. Where you am, I will be. And where I am, you will be. I mean, he is an ever-present God in our time of need. He never sleeps or slumbers. He is always awake. He's always there to answer prayer. He's always there to comfort. I don't care if you wake up at 4 in the morning, 8 in the morning, or 3 in the morning. He is there with you. In your Egypt, your Beersheba, or your Canaan, wherever you are, he is there. I will go down to Egypt, and I will surely, here it is, I will surely bring you up again. There's the promise. See, you're going down here. This is a, this is a temporary assignment because you will come back up again. Now, you, we're going to talk a little bit about that in a minute. And then he goes on to say, and Joseph, Joseph, this must be, and forgive me because I'm going to be emotional today. I can just feel it. 
Joseph will put his hand on your eyes. Remember why he's going to Egypt. Let's not get all caught up in the fear he may have had and the journey he may have had and loading up the wagons and the camels and all the... No, he's going to meet the son that he has just found out is alive after 22 years that he thought he was dead. And now in the midst of all this, God in his tender mercies and loving kindness not only says, hey, listen, buddy, you better obey me. He meets him at his emotional point. The reason that Jacob's heart wants to go. Okay, sometimes there's, you know, there's the overriding what God wants us, but sometimes we have a personal thing there too, don't we? And God brings that out. He brings the personal out of the command. How amazing. How amazing is that? He says, I will go to Egypt with you and I'll bring you up again. Church, God will incubate, as we talked about already, a nation in those 400 years that will never lose their identity the entire time they're there. It is a statistical fact that no nation except the Jews have retained their national identity. Every other generation, if they are like disseminated or assimilated into a culture, they lose their national identity after two generations. 400 years, four generations will go by, and they will not lose their identity. In fact, they will gain their identity being there. Amazing, just amazing. This, however, will be the last time Jacob will see the promised land, this side of heaven. Because we will read before we're done this book that he will pass. What will happen? He will be entombed in Egypt. He'll die in Egypt. And you may say, well, then, what did God mean when he said, and I will bring you up? Well, he meant the nation will be brought back up, that's for sure. We know from the book of Joshua, they crossed the Jordan River into the promised land, didn't they? But even more specific, he won't remain in Egypt even though he's entombed there because Genesis 50 tells us that, that, that his body will be brought out of Egypt by Joseph and he will be buried in Canaan in a family tomb. Do you know God will honor his promise even after your past? You don't need to see it to know his promise is sure and true. He's going to honor his promises. That's just the kind of God that we serve. Can you say with me, he sure keeps his promises. Touch your neighbor and tell them that. I mean, some of you have a neighbor. You need to put your arms on their shoulders and shake them a little bit. Yeah. You need to do that because some of us get leaking in that. We, we, we're not sure. He sure keeps his promises. Amen. Having been assured that leaving Canaan is the direction that the Lord wants, that's why he stopped at Beersheba and built that altar, isn't it? Now that he's been assured, we just read the verses, he will cross over the border of Egypt. And the comfort that God gives Jacob that not only will I be with you, not only will your hand come up, but the very son you're going to see will be with you when you pass. He will lay his hands in upon your eyes, which is in Hebrew, his way of saying, in his presence you'll pass and he will be with you. That is such great comfort. 
What an awesome God. Verses 5 to 7. Then Jacob arose from Beersheba, and the sons of Israel carried their father. Can I, do I have to say anything about that? And their little ones and their wives in the carts which Pharaoh had sent to carry them. So they took their livestock and their goods, which they had acquired in the land of Canaan, and they went to Egypt, Jacob and all the descendants that were with him. So the entire family. They not only didn't leave their stuff behind, they didn't leave anybody behind. And I just want to say this to you as we're sitting here today. Boy, don't give up believing and praying for those in your family who need to go where you're being called to go. Okay? See, we're going to declare in this room, nobody left behind. Nobody that I've witnessed to, nobody that's part of my family, nobody's going to be left behind because I'm going to gather up all the stuff God tells me to carry and the most important stuff is the people he tells me to carry along the way. Amen? Yeah. We got to believe that as we sit here right now. Now, in verses 8 to 25, I didn't put them up on the screens. We're not going to go through them because basically they're the listings. Scripture goes down as you have read it and lists all of Jacob's family all of the 12 tribes and their family. And it just began to, to list them through and through and through and through. So let's go over to verse 26 and 27 now and see how that kind of concludes. Verse 26 tells us, um, no, we're just going to go 26. Yeah, I'm not going to read through all that. Okay. All the persons who went with Jacob to Egypt who came from his body Besides Jacob's sons, wives, were 66 persons in all. Would you say 66 with me? Okay. Not 76 trombones, but 66. Shofars. Yes. And the sons of Joseph who were born to him in Egypt were two persons. So he's, what's happening here in that whole that we're not reading, all those multiple verses that show all the family, the 12 tribes, they amount up to be 66 people. Okay. But wait a minute, some of you are thinking, well, wait a minute, I thought there were 70 people. Didn't they go in with 70 people? Well, let's continue to read. Verse 27 says, and the sons of Joseph who were born to him in Egypt. How many is that? Two. Two. That's 68 now. All the persons of the house of Jacob who went to Egypt were 70. What this boils down to is simply this. We have the two sons, Manasseh and Ephraim who were born in Egypt, they were already there, but they're of the house of Jacob, okay? And Joseph, he's already there. So that, what's that? 69. And the 70 of this Jacob himself. And that 66 turns into 70 real quick when we look at that. And that explains the 70. Verse 28. Then he sent Judah before him to Joseph. Well, that's interesting. wonder why that would be to point out before him the way. Judah points the way. Hmm. And they came to the land of Goshen. The Goshen means to draw near. First of all, let's look at why Goshen. Let me let you know that it's the greatest, most fertile part of the land. It was a very, very choice area. The reason for it is because of where it sat geographically in the land itself. And this separate geographical setting, which was very provisional, 
I mean, when all the plagues started coming and all, nothing touched Goshen. So God separated them for a twofold reason. The first reason is it kept Israel separate from the rest of Egypt. They were there. We know they were slaves there. They were in bondage, but they were still separate. Because if they weren't separate, they would have assimilated at some point with the Egyptian culture. Somebody would have married, you know, the girl with the big mascara. Trust me. Right? So God separated them into a very provisional place, yet a very separate place. I don't know about you, but the last I checked, the Bible said, be in the world, but not of the world. Come ye and be separate. See, we live in Goshen here. See, we're part of this world, but we're, we're, but we're not of it. We're just in it. So you know what? When plagues start knocking on your door, you need to come open the door, stand outside, and declare you're in Goshen. That's for somebody in this room. Because all of those plagues, the lice, the froggies, all that that we just sang the song about, right? That didn't touch the people in Goshen. And the other primary reason was, again, God, Jehovah Sneaky, was up to keeping them separate because he was building a nation, and he wanted a pure people, an un, unassimilated people with the culture that was going on around them. Amen? Are you with me? But why Judah? So we found out why Goshen, but why Judah? Judah leads the family into provision. Judah leads the family into the presence of Joseph slash Jesus, Okay, because isn't Joseph the typology of Jesus? And Judah leads that procession into his presence. I'm telling you, Judah would be not only the seed promise of the Messiah, so he would come first. That, that's, that, that's the theological reason. But understand this, Judah means praise. Judah means praise. Praise is the soil that allows the fruit of joy to arise. Praise is the soil that allows us to enter into his gates with what? Thanksgiving. Enter into his what? Courts with what? Moaning, groaning, complaint. No, we enter his courts with praise. So Judah... Is, is, is a typology here of our praise taking us into the presence of the Lord. Boy, I, if we could just do that, we could get set free. We actually think if we go in just with uh, just this, how unfair things are and how unrighteous things are, that's going to take us into... No, no, no. Paul said that praise God no matter what's going on. Praise him in the high tops, the low tops, you know, the converses and the boots. No matter what season your feet are find themselves, to praise God no matter what. Why? Because, because here we see Judah. Judah takes us into the presence of the king of the tribe of Judah. That's why when we praise, we get raised. When we complain, we remain. That's right. That's exactly why. So even in the courts, the courts, this is why when Israel would come at, at these seasonal times of the feast of the Lord, when they all had to come to Jerusalem, the Psalms of Ascent 
They're songs of praise. They were coming into the presence of God into the Temple Mount in Jerusalem, and they weren't coming like, I'm sure glad I'm here because I got a lot to talk to God about. You know what I mean? Like, this has been a bad year. <laughs> no, that's not how they came at all. You read those Psalms of Ascent, and they are just singing a joyful noise unto the Lord. Come into his house with praise. Come into his presence with singing. Know he is the Lord, that he has made us, and we not ourselves. He, we are a sheep, and the, you know, he is our shepherd, and the sheep. On and on and on and on and on it goes. And, and, and it's so interesting. When you go to Israel, Jerusalem sits up. And so when they would be singing these songs, they were actually geographically going up as they were singing. What a beautiful picture that is, because guess what? As you sit here now, we may be on a flat surface, but I'm here to tell you, the Holy Spirit's here to tell you, when you praise, this room's going to start going up. Mm. So we enter the presence of God. How do we enter? We send Judah first. This is why Jehoshaphat put the choir ahead of the army. Because not, oh, somebody needs, now God's having me stay here. I don't know who this is for, but see, God knows this. So he told Jehoshaphat, put the choir ahead of the Marines. See, this makes no sense to us to put the church choir in front of the Marines. We want the guys with the guns. What you need to know is praise is our guns. Praise destroys the weapons of the enemy. And so much so in 2 Chronicles 20 that they actually, when they sat and watched as they sang these praises unto God, the enemy was so utterly confused that they actually killed each other. And they just sat and watched it all happen. And just like, see, God never is done even when that happens. God tells them to go in and take all the plunder they had. So they went in with praise. They didn't have to fight nothing. They just had to use the weapons of their warfare, which are not of this world, but mighty through God to the pulling down of strongholds. And when they did that, the enemy was destroyed, annihilated, and he prospered them on the way out of town. Now, that's what I'm talking about, a good church meeting. Mm. Man, we, we could just stop here and just start, we could just go out and sing on our way out. Just really confuse all of Washington Township here today. You know what I'm saying? Really. Verse 29 to 30, my Lord, I don't know if I can go any further. I'm just, I said, let my people go. I said, let my people, see, I just can't help myself. So Joseph made ready his chariot and went up to Goshen to meet his father. We need to take a deep breath. Can you imagine the excitement? Can you imagine just, I mean, I, I bet he put like a whole new layer of Maybelline great lash on for that meeting. Seriously. So, and he presented himself to him and fell on his neck and wept on his neck a good while. Oh, boy. I, I don't know how this is sitting, if you're seeing this for the first time, but when I saw it preparing for this, I had to sit and look at that for a good while. Because... Something is there that we really, really need to understand. And Israel said to Joseph, now let me die. I don't know if that's exactly the greatest first greeting you'd want to say when you say somebody after 20 years, but whatever. Since I have seen your face because you're still alive. Let, let's take a moment at that. Can you even? Can you even? 
can we even put ourselves in this moment whatsoever? This has got to be one of the most powerful, poignant points in Scripture that there is, besides the resurrection of Jesus and him showing himself to those he thought. This has to be right up there. I mean, it's just beyond words. Could anything have prepared this old man for the picture of Rachel's first son riding on a cloud of dust in Pharaoh's chariot? Could anything have prepared him for that? He thought he was dead, and now he sees that he's the ruler of the world. That would require some adjustments just to take that in for the moment, wouldn't it? And may I, I just wonder, did he, did he scout over, did he, look, did he look for any incisions or any scars from inflicted beast wounds? No, there were none there. Weeping a good while, in my estimation, is not an emotional outburst that just happens at a moment. Weeping for a good while says to me that it was emotions and it was grief and it was stuff that was stored up, stuffed up, that was just contained for so very, very long. To weep for a good while just had to be a whole factory inventory full of sadness that was released in that moment. You know, while we read that Joseph wept when he saw his brothers, nothing, nothing could have prepared his heart for seeing his daddy. Nothing. Nothing could have. As they all watched, suddenly the fog, I'm sure, in the whole family began to lift as they remembered the dream. The dream that not only would the brothers bow down, but Jacob himself would bow down. And we see this whole thing coming to fruition just as we look at this in this narrative. And all the roles, I'm sure, that the brothers played were naked before them all. Also interesting to note that Jacob will go on while scripture doesn't tell us this history does, Jacob will go on to live 17 years in Egypt. I don't know if that says anything to you, but 17 years is the same amount of time that Joseph was before he was sold. God restored. He gave him the 17 years he had with him, and he repeated the 17 years again. Do we, do we have a wonderful God? Do we just have a wonderful God? There's some of the things that he does that, that we may never even know that he's done on our behalf are just amazing. He's not only a God of justice, he's a relational God. Just absolutely amazing. Verse 31 to 34, and we close. Then Joseph said to his brothers and to his father's household, I will go up and tell Pharaoh and say to him, my brothers and those of my father's house who were in the land of Canaan have come to me, and the men are shepherds. This is important that we understand this. For their occupation has been to feed livestock, and they have brought their flocks, their herds, and all they have. Verse 33. So it shall be, 
when Pharaoh calls you and says, what is your occupation? That you will say, your servant's occupation has been with livestock from our youth even till now, both we and also our fathers, that we may dwell in the land of Goshen. For every shepherd is an abomination to the Egyptians. What in the world is this all about? I'm so glad you asked. First of all, as you know, we've been tracking a little bit of the, the, the typology between Joseph and Jesus, and here we see it again. Because Joseph, who was a type of Jesus, is going to intercede on behalf of the family. Do you know that's why Jesus is called the great high priest? Because a high priest represents the people to God and represents God to the people. So he's reflecting Jesus as he is he's interceding and he's mediating, if you will. He's going to mediate with Pharaoh on the behalf of the people. Jesus is our great high priest. But let's look at the logistics of what is going on here. First of all, we need to understand that in Egyptian culture, there were seven castes. Castes are, are levels of society, if you will. You know, the Hindus often talk about that. And shepherds were at the very lowest caste. That's why it says in that last verse that the Egyptians loathed. They, they, it was an abomination to be a shepherd. That's what the Egyptians thought, okay? Never would they allow a shepherd in their home to even, you know, be around their children, to marry within would absolutely not happen. Weren't allowed in their temple whatsoever. That's why Joseph is saying, tell them that you're shepherds. Remember, he's a type of Jesus. So not only is he the mediator, he's instructing. He's instructing them what to do. Because he knew they needed to be separate. Joseph knew they needed to be separated because if they weren't separated, they would assimilate. And this was a safety net that kept them separated from the Egyptians. And they didn't have to do the separating. The Egyptians, the devil would do the work of God for them. That's what I like. I like when Satan, who tries to destroy us, God uses him to grant us an upward cast. Amen? Absolutely. They would stay away and be marked, if you will. There'd be a mark on them, so to speak, okay? Being open with you and I and our Christianity, I have to tell you, will, will prevent a lot of wolves in your life. I think this is a simple application here. Are we separated you know, it's, it's really cool. Well, I think of Cheryl Testa. She comes immediately to my mind right now because I remember walking through a time with her that she was really marked at her job. She worked in the court system of Philadelphia, and she was reading her Bible at lunch, and she had her little fish, and she had her, you know, uh, her star of day. I mean, and then the whole office was in an uproar over it. See, she marked herself. And while persecution can come from marking, I'll tell you what, she didn't have to worry about any wolves coming along asking her out that should not be part of the church because they weren't interested. So being open, you know, with those kind of things are, are good because it, it, it separates us and allows purity to stay within us. See, sometimes we, 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 we think that's really strange, like we don't want to be the oddball. Well, I mean, as we, you know, I often say, 
be fruitful, don't be nutty. But the point of the matter is, is that we should be not ashamed of the gospel. Sometimes when people get saved undercover, they live an undercover Christian life. And it's useless to the kingdom. Because you might take some persecution for a while, but I will guarantee you that Jack and Susie and Jack and Jill who went up the hill and fell and broke their crown will come looking for you for some prayer when the time comes. The very ones who made fun of you will come looking for your help and your assistance because people know that you have something they don't have. And you're not ashamed of it, amen? So Joseph knew... He knew that if they were assimilated with the Egyptians, they'd be swallowed up by them, that they would become just like the Egyptians. And so there was this mark that was placed upon them that made them very different. Amazing. And while that took place, God also had an opportunity to just turn his direction over toward Goshen and and place his blessing there. Because the plagues never touched the place. They moved on and had a relationship. Now, we're going to close here. We're going to pick up next week at verse 47. And and I know some of you might be thinking, "Well, well, wait a minute. I'm a little confused here because if Joseph is a type, you know, the typology that we're looking for in Christ... How are we going to relate the fact that he's in Egypt? How does that fit into this journey that we've been taking that Jesus and Joseph kind of dance together, if you will, in a lot of attributes? Well, you're going to have to come next week to find that out (laughs) because that's exactly where we're going next week. Would you stand with me? Father, we come into your amazing presence. And Lord, we, we, we right now ourselves stop at Beersheba. And we lift up the sacrifice of our praise to you. Because our sacrifice is not by the shedding of bulls and goats and oxen anymore on a rock. Our sacrifice has been paid through the bloodshed of Jesus Christ. Now we just praise you for all that you've done. So so we stop at our Beersheba, wherever that is. Any fears in this room, any doubts in this room, any journeys that have been taken that that there's, there's question marks about, Lord, I pray that you would just settle that right now as we lift up the sacrifice of our praise unto you during this entire meeting. And wherever it is that you send us, it's not always the places we want to go. It's not always the places we expect to go. Lord, sometimes you allow us to to gain something only to find out that you're changing and you you want us to go to the left now. I, I pray that we would learn from these lessons that you never sleep or slumber, that you are good and you are good all the time and your mercy endures forever. And I thank you. I thank you for the lessons that you've taught us in this journey through this Genesis. Thank you for the lessons that you have taught us as we've watched 
Jacob, whose name was changed to Israel, and the back and forth that took place between the flesh and the spirit. Thank you for the Abrahamic covenant, that we have a covenant with you that cannot be broken. It's been ratified by a perfect lamb. It will never, ever lose its power. That whatever comes our way, that we will be called Israel and not Jacob because we will look at our situation based on covenant. That you have a covenant with us where you provide all the blessings and none of the cursings. And so I just thank you for where you've taken us today. And Lord, as we close, I just pray that you would speak to each one of my sisters in this room each a daughter that in this room represents a home, represents a family to some degree, uh, has a position in, in the marketplace. Father, show us the mark. Put a mark on us that we'll know what that mark is. We'll know what you want us, how you want us to be marked. Not a mark of the beast, but the mark of the most high God that we will be protected from the plagues. We will be protected from the wolves in the marketplace and the deceivers that, that stalk around uh, and just look to devour, namely Satan himself. As that rain is pouring down, Lord, I just thank you for pouring in this room, pouring in this room a now word. New manna, fresh manna today, Lord. Set us aside, set us apart, and may we be willing to be set apart. Touch your sheep, Lord. And Lord David said, from the rising of the sun to the going down of the same, and from the rising of this meeting to the going down of this meeting, the name of the Lord is to be praise. We send you to first out of this room. And to you, we give the praise and the honor and the glory. You are worthy, 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 worthy. We just exalt you right now in this place. May the clapping just increase. May the shouts increase. May our heart just increase more and more to just be molded into your likeness. You are such a wonderful God, and we love you. Amen.